Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to COVID-19 and Culture Podcast 4. This podcast will be about writing and positive future changes. My name is Emily Zobel Marshall, and I'm a reader in post-colonial literatures. I'm going to be taking over from Professor Susan Watkins. She's hosted the previous episodes, but she'll be joining in the conversation as one of our guests. So this is the fourth in our podcast series on COVID-19 and culture. In the first episode, we explored what we can learn from history about coping with pandemic and lockdown. In the second episode, we looked at how our lives and our engagement with culture have changed because of COVID-19, focusing on the body, the urban environment and food. Our third episode examined how COVID-19 and lockdown have made stigma and social inequality worse, but also how we can see resistance and challenge to that in the culture around us. So our fourth and final episode will be examining how we can see positive personal and wider changes via writing as hopefully the pandemic eases or we emerge from it. So I'm delighted to be joined today by three of my colleagues from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. We have Rachel Connor, she's the course director for English and Creative Writing and she's also a novelist, a short story writer and a dramatist for the stage and radio. We also have James McGraw, who is a lecturer in English Literature and Creative Writing. Susan Watkins is a professor in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities and also the director for Centre for Culture and the Arts, which is a wonderful centre which is used as a platform for culture and the arts. So welcome all, it's a pleasure to have you here and I'm going to start by asking Rachel some questions. So Rachel, in your research you've argued that writing can help us process or make sense of difficult times, which we've all experienced in different ways during the pandemic. Why do you think that is? Well, for me, the act of writing is a way to process thinking and feeling on the page, regardless of you know what's happening in the world around us. So there's something for me that happens in that act of making thoughts and feelings, lots of processes going on. There's a cognitive process, right, sort of taking the thoughts and transferring it onto the page. And there's lots of research around that that talks about how difficult that is. You know, there's a heavy cognitive load in trying to kind of, you know, decode the thoughts and and translate them into a coherent sense. But I think the process is also a psycho-emotional one. I kind of think of writing almost as, as a kind of mirror for the heart and the soul. So I think that's why, you know, it's it's important, especially in these difficult times. For me, writing is a way of making meaning. And it's also about making connections between things to combat dislocation, isolation, loneliness. So there's a sort of sense of connection, I think, that's brought about. And I think writing is a sort of container, in a sense, for wherever we are in the moment. It can contain our self thoughts, our experience really well. 
Thank you, Rachel. And I love the idea of uh, writing being a, a mirror to the heart. Have you been able to write during the pandemic? And where would you suggest any budding writer could start if they've never tried it before? It's interesting. I, I found that the scope and the the purpose of my writing has shifted or did shift, certainly in the first immediate lockdown. I think with the shock almost that we all felt in having to change our practices, change our ways of living and behaving. It was so different, wasn't it? So I felt that what I wanted to do was kind of more personal, expressive writing. So I started journaling again um, in earnest much more regularly and found myself wanting to write things like blog posts that I felt spoke more directly of my own experience. It's not that my experience was not kind of expressed through my fiction, but it, you know, the, the mode changed. I found myself wanting to do that. Writing new fiction felt like quite a challenge, I have to say, that it really it was about just getting by, trying to get through the days and make sense of everything. But what I did do is I returned to edit a short story that I'd written a while ago, and it's a dystopian story. So somehow the context of the pandemic gave it a kind of fresh context that resonated more. There was perhaps less of a gap between, I guess, the real and the imagined. So that was quite a, a useful thing to do in that time. Just in terms of where to start, um, I think the main thing is, I think I would say to anyone at this time, especially start simple, you know, don't push yourself, don't expect too much of yourself. If you're a new writer who's not done any before, then just start very simply. Don't expect to be, you know, writing a, a whole novel script. Um, I think there's, I feel like with the pandemic, there was very much an emphasis on self-development and personal development and let's all go off and, you know, learn how to speak a new language and all of this kind of stuff. And actually it's just about, okay, just put the words on the page that's enough and that's that's a very good start I think one of the upsides of the pandemic is that digital places are more prevalent even than before and there's a host of great great stuff out there for new writers online courses you know master classes that were there before but they've really honed their offer I think and they allow a framework you know you can do an online course alongside other people there's some really excellent tutors out there and there's also the convenience of doing it all at home of course so you don't have to travel so places like the National Writing Centre based in Nor Norwich there's Arvon which traditionally has done residential courses and they've started sort of they've translated that to home so Arvon's writing at home program is brilliant for new starters you know it's great it offers you all the all the tuition you would get in person but on a screen and then also various publishing houses and editorial agencies as well who are offering mentoring and writing so I would certainly look at what those online offers can provide for for new writers whether it's media history English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey, 
or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. Thanks, Rachel. There's some really interesting, there's some really good tips there. And, you know, and as you say, in a way, during the pandemic, we've never seen so much focus on reading and writing. But also there is there is a, a, a tendency to put pressure on ourselves, mm-hmm. um, to put pressure on ourselves to produce, to put pressure on ourselves. I suppose in, in using that time, you know, in some sort of way, which is productive. Yeah, as you say, you know, learning a new language. And if you're not learning a new language, you should be out training to run a marathon or learning to bake really elaborate cakes um, and share <laughs> pictures on Instagram of how successful your lockdown time was. Um, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. But what, um, there's, well, one thing that we've seen during this pandemic is a focus, an increased focus on this idea of mindfulness. Mm. And interestingly, you say that your writing took a sort of a more inward turn uh, during uh, during lockdown. But in terms of mindfulness, how useful do you think the idea of the term is? Um, mm-hmm. And the idea of, I suppose, writing for mindfulness. Great question. Uh, I I struggle a little bit with the word mindfulness. I think it's a useful word in one way, in the sense that, as you say, it sort of suggests a turning inward or a focus on the internal, on something beyond the material. And I think that's always good. For me, that's always a good thing. But I do feel it's become, and it's quite useful in a sense that it takes all of those things and it's a useful shorthand for for that. However, you know, I think it can be sort of hyped or exploited or misunderstood. There's the mindfulness industry, you know, and I think we need to be careful in a sense of how we use it. For me, writing is really about bringing things to consciousness. So anything that allows us to reflect on who we are, what we're feeling, what's true, you know, what's true for us, that's an excellent thing. And if mindfulness does that for people, that's great. However, I do, as I say, have some reservations. It's hard, though, to know how else to to, to kind of term it or to, you know, to give it a label. I think the, the problem with mindfulness is it puts the accentuation on the mind part. <laughs> and for me, writing is about so much more than just the mind. And, it, and the, the mind is actually, you know, it can get in the way of the writing process. It's the mind that activates that critical voice that says, this is no good, this is not right, you know, no one will want to read this. All of those things undermine the creative process. So I, I don't know, I'd like to see something like, you know, writing for discovery mm. or um, one of my favourite ways of saying kind of pretty much the same thing is this thing called sense writing. So it's and there's a, there's a whole kind of body of work being done on this. It's kind of a new concept. Check out sensewriting.org if you want to look at this further. Uh, but the, the thing about sense writing is it's, there's an emphasis on the body, on the somatic, as well as the intellectual and the mind. So it's employing the body as part of the whole process. And the idea is that it's not, you know, sense writing is not just for writers who want to produce, let's say, novels or plays or poems. It's about the pleasure of writing and it's about building a kind of sustainable, joyful, creative practice. So I I love that. I love that concept of sense writing. I think it's wonderful. And for me, that's more useful than the term mindfulness in terms of writing anyway, at least. Fascinating counterpart to the idea of writing, mindfulness, sense writing. And uh, and you're you're also an advocate of free writing, uh, aren't you, uh, Rachel, as a way of getting words on the page? 
I am. I use that with students all the time and they love it. They've grown to love it. You know, they, they arrive as, as new undergraduates. Um, you know, they've never really done anything like it before. And you say, here's permission to write badly and to not, you know, to not do it in the correct way, to not worry about the sentence structure. Just get your ideas, your thoughts, your feelings on the page. And that's only the starting point. That's the key thing. It's what you do with the free writing, what comes out of that. And then it becomes a process of mining that that free write sort of piece of very raw data as it were and and then looking for what's really here and that's what we teach essentially I think as as teachers of writing. A very liberating technique and you're also an advocate Rachel of, of the sort of materiality of writing so not using always a, a PC or a laptop or your phone to write but to to use a pen and a paper why that focus on the pen and paper what does using a pen and paper bring you that green can't yes that's a great question too i i have to say first of all i do both you know i do do a lot of writing on on screen with a laptop you know fingers on the keyboard but there are certain kinds of writing that i love to do on the page on paper and with a pen and again i think it's about the body so i feel like although the fingers on the keyboard is a physical act there's something and I think especially in this digital age that we find ourselves in, that brings us in touch with our physicality. So it's something about the act of writing, the movement of, you know, the my hand all, along the page, something about the paper. So I'm, I'm as many writers, quite geeky about stationery and the, the quality of the paper. And I, I love to feel the substance of the paper. It's that sense of the organic, you know, it's come from the earth rather than being manufactured uh, or being synthetic. And it does, it does kind of, it does its way into my writing as well, my fictional writing. So I've written, for example, about the scarcity of resources and imagining how life might be when paper is no longer something we can afford or obtain. And I feel this is a kind of homage to paper, really, and a kind of sense of let's value it while we can as a resource, you know, something that we can be physically connected to, to the earth in that sort of very basic kind of way. Thanks, Rachel. And and I guess that brings, you know, the, the idea that pen and the paper brings us back to the idea of sense writing uh, as well, doesn't it? And this segues perfectly into bringing James into the conversation here, because James teaches life writing. So um, so you, you teach and research life writing, James, as well as right. how autism is represented in our culture. Could you explain what you mean by life writing and perhaps say a little bit about why this kind of writing is so popular, especially during the pandemic? Well, for me, life writing is um, it's an alternative to the dominant scientific or psychiatric narratives of, of autism. So in, in my research on autism, you know, I often read scientific texts that supposedly tell a whole group of people you know, this is what you are as autistic people. And so so what I've done in my book is to provide footnotes where I could think of an experience that provides an alternative take on, you know, the scientific narrative. And uh, I'm very keen to encourage other autistic people to do that too. Tell our own stories gives us uh, an important kind of agency. It, it sort of transcends statistics. 
one of the most important books I've read during lockdown. It's called All the Weight of Our Dreams. And this is uh, and the subtitle On Living Racialized Autism. This is a book, uh, 500 pages of life writings by various autistic people. And in particular, they're writing about how racial identities and disabled identities um, intersect. I think that's going to be an important new direction in uh, well, well, it already is an important new direction in studies. And I'm looking forward to seeing where that will go. It certainly sounds like it is a really important book, James. And, you know, you talked about the idea of, of people telling their own stories. So yeah. what advice would you give to people who want to begin telling that story or perhaps to tell a story of another person's life? It's a it's a it's a huge sort of commitment, isn't it, to try and put that down on paper. So where do you begin? What advice would you give to somebody who wants to start writing about their life or, or somebody else's life? Well, I'm very much of the view that everyone should should give it a try, life writing. Um, I suppose, for one thing, it does relieve us from some of the pressures of having to think of a plot if we're relying predominantly on certain memories. But but of course, you know, plot is kind of inescapable in life, isn't it? Lives, lives change. I think part of the nature of being being interested in studying literature you have to also be interested in in people's lives and and life writing tends to sort of centralize that if you like so to begin i would say first of all there is no such thing as a complete life story you know my granddad in the in the last weeks of his life he wrote maybe four or five pages in an a5 notebook remembering his early life as a mechanic and that 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 notebook is quite a treasure to to his family you know um it's easy to be inhibited by the thought well my life has been quite ordinary or even boring but i i strongly feel that you know some of the most some of the best selling autobiographies of our time are actually by celebrities and those are what I find boring. You know, there's only so much that we can read about awards ceremonies and cocaine and feuds with other celebrities. It just doesn't really get me. What I like to read about, I would rather read someone's memoirs about what it was like to be a mum in the 1990s or, you know, what it was like to work, you know, to, to work as a blacksmith in the 1970s or something. So so-called ordinary lives, they have a kind of diversity that, that we don't always get in in the, the mainstream autobiographies. That's really, that's very inspiring, James. I have uh, seven hours of, uh, of, of, of tapes that I recorded uh, with my late mother about her life. So we did an hour for each decade of her life after she had got her, her diagnosis. And uh, so I have seven hours of her talking about her life from her earliest memories right up until the time she was ill. But, you know, what you say is very inspiring because you you say that, well, it doesn't have to be a so-called exceptional life for it to be interesting. So uh, so I, I need to start transcribing. Yes. Um, on, on a practical note, just, just to reaffirm what Rachel said about the importance of just sort of being free with the senses, um, sometimes if I don't know what to write next, 
rather than thinking about the image or the scene, I, I, I look to the language itself and I might just pick up a text that's near to me and open it at a random page with the point of not necessarily using the first word I see, but looking for words that I haven't used for a while, come across the word languishing or something like that. Okay, right. What does this? What could this poem do with that word? And of course, it might might belong in a different poem altogether. But it's a good way, uh, and I enjoy practicing this with students in webinars for the life writing module. Take the text that's nearest to you. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be a receipt, or you know, in in one instance of this, uh, someone had a um, a can of lemonade or something on, on the desk and, and what they got was this small found poem which was in a cool dry place away from direct sunlight so that's a little line that we see on food and drink containers isn't it but just taking those words on their own in a cool dry place away from direct sunlight it, it's just a space that we can imagine isn't it it is wonderfully evocative when it's taken out of that context. Yeah, yeah. and also it's, 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 it could work almost like an advert. That's when you might really enjoy a kind of cold lemonade, you know, yeah. away from direct sunlight. James, I'm going to ask you to big up your research now. So I wanted, to, I wanted if you could tell us a bit about how your research into autism and creativity has changed the way in which health professionals diagnose and make judgments about adult autism spectrum disorder. So this book, Naming Adult Autism, like Rachel, I am very interested in the intersections of different areas, including creative and critical writing. So there are autobiographical footnotes in here to explain certain points. Again, uh, like and like Susan as well, I think, as well as Rachel, we're interested not just in creative and critical writing, but the sciences and the humanities and how those can interact. So there's tended to be an idea, a cultural idea. We see we see this in, in fiction itself. We see it in film, on TV, but we also see it in psychiatry. This assumption that to be autistic is to be either very good at maths or science or else to not really be good at anything. And in the research, I found various flaws, uh, you know, traced the emergence of that idea. And th there are serious holes in that idea. I'm certainly not denying that there are many autistic people who can thrive in the sciences or in engineering. But what we also need to recognise is that many autistic people can thrive in the arts and the humanities in creative subjects. So in next May, I'll be doing uh, an invited talk for the Royal College of Psychiatry. And I've done similar events before. So where I give sort of, uh, in effect, training sessions for professionals to learn about autism. And something that I do is that I always recite or perform one of my own poems in those, on those occasions. In particular, I've been writing quite a lot of poems using anagrams as constraints to look at autism as, uh, you know, how in a seemingly limited set of letters, there are almost infinite possibilities. So I perform this, this poem at these events when giving training sessions for psychiatrists or doctors, just so that 
even if they hate the poem or, or worse, even if they think the poem is boring, I just want them for three minutes to see that autistic people can write poetry. And that's something I want them to take with them just so that, you know, 10 years ago when I was beginning to be referred for autism assessment, some people along the way said, and, and what, what subjects do you uh, do you study and teach? Uh, English literature um, and then people would respond well that 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 subject needs quite a lot of empathy and that's not a quality associated with autism and uh, it was one of those quite painful moments that do actually create a kind of energy in this case slight anger to be honest just that these stereotypes can be very problematic and uh, I passionately believe that for us to understand and appreciate autism more, there, should, there needs to be more attention to autism and creativity. Thanks, James. And, you know, and your, your book, as well as dispelling these stereotypes, is a wonderful example of how the humanities can influence the sciences and make really important changes. So, you know, well done. And, um, and, and, and what I want to ask as well, James, also is, in terms of our present moment, do you think that after COVID, health professionals are going to have to listen to people's lived experience a lot more on their own terms, as the medical profession is is still finding out so much about the disease? So do you think in the wake of the pandemic, there will be a change in the way that the medical profession listen to people? I would certainly hope so, yes. I mean, you know, when we talk about disability, it's it's like using the word post-colonialism, you know, it's so vast, so infinitely vast and diverse within itself. But of course, disabilities intersect with other identities, including other disabilities. So, for example, th- this is not my situation, but, but what must it be like to to be you, you, you know, if someone is suffering with a situation that makes them vulnerable so they can't go out at all, you know, how does that affect things? For, for autistic people during lockdown, the enforced change of routine that's like, or it's been like a legal thing, hasn't it? That can be quite challenging. In my case, the biggest challenge has been that I can't, I can only write in one place, really. As in now, I can only write in one place. Before now, what I would do is I'll go to the university library and I miss having these other places to go to. Obviously, no one knows what's going to happen with the pandemic and with the various waves and things. But maybe in these gaps in between, you know, first lockdown, second lockdown, let's hope there won't be another one. But if there is, what can we learn as we go through these stages? You know, if if we're stuck with this illness forever and there's a lockdown every year or something, there are still things that we might learn in those spaces in between. The first lockdown, there were some changes made, but it took a good few weeks, didn't it, in terms of the, how the, the, the official rules applied to autistic people. And it can be very difficult to keep up with them as well because of the change so often. You know, that, that's the other side of it. The routine changes within itself. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to bring Susan in here. So your recent book's about contemporary women's post-apocalyptic writing. So it's fiction that imagines the end of the world as we know it, and also how life changes afterwards. 
So I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a bit about the work that you examine in your writing. Yeah, I mean, what I am, am interested in is, in the book is the way that women's writing in this genre actually tends to offer a much more positive vision of change after an apocalyptic event. So if we think of some of the classics of this genre, so things like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which I think is almost like the Ur text in this case, it's a text that tends to be quite nostalgic. It looks back to civilization before the apocalyptic event. It focuses on the father-son relationship. It's about carrying the fire, distinguishing between the good guys and the bad guys. And at the end of the novel, even though the, the man dies, that the son is kind of handed over to this new nuclear family that kind of emerge at the end of the text. So I suppose what interested me is whether women have got that same kind of investment in getting back to how things were before. And it seemed to me that in much of the writing that I looked at, they were doing something quite different. So they they seemed to be saying, well, what was so great about the world before the apocalypse? You know, there were there were all kinds of inequalities baked in to the society that gets destroyed in, in their imaginative visions of the future. They're much more willing to consider changing things after an apocalyptic event in positive ways. They're less invested in the status quo. And I guess that got me thinking, well, why is it that so many male authored apocalyptic texts focus on men who are trying to survive, you know, men trying to protect women? men trying to rebuild things the way they were before. There's a lot of nostalgia for the world before things changed. So instead of focusing on that, I looked at all the women writers working in this genre right now, and, and they're so varied. People like, obviously, Margaret Atwood, but other writers like um, Octavia Butler. She's a really interesting writer who who's dead now, but she but she was writing really early in the 1990s. And some of these texts are just so oddly prescient, you know, um, they, they imagine things which we're seeing now, which is a really kind of bizarre experience from the reading re reading point of view. Many of the writers that you examine see the apocalypse as a catalyst for change from a patriarchal society. That's absolutely fascinating. And male writers tend to have this nostalgia then for the past, which you know, they they hanker after because it was better for them, I suppose. Could yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they've got more to gain from from keeping things the same, I suppose, or trying to get back to how things were. Could you give us a few examples, some specific examples, Susan, of how different women writers imagine society and writing changing for the better? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mentioned Margaret Atwood but first, rather than speak about Atwood, who's perhaps, you know, she gets a lot of, you know, attention and, and I'll come back to her. But but I wanted to start with the person I mentioned just now, who's called Octavia Butler. And she wrote two novels. Um, the first was called Parable of the Sower, published in 1993. And it's set in 2024 in this gated community near L.A. in the U United States. Butler's a African-American woman writer, and she imagines the social fabric of U.S. society being broken down, not by a big apocalyptic event, but by a kind of series of smaller scale things, climate change, economic collapse, 
basically there's no civics structure anymore. Only people who can pay can afford things like police, ambulance, public services. Um, lots of places have become company towns, indentured labour. In, in fact, modern slavery has become common again. But what she imagines in this kind of terrible environment is this um, protagonist called Lauren, who's a young African-American woman. She's the daughter of the local Baptist minister. And the thing that's different about her is that she's a hyper empath or sharer, which means that she's able to experience the pain and pleasures of others, um, almost as if they're happening to her. And she's one of a small group of people who, as a consequence of, you know, some kind of uh, drug, you know, side effects in the previous generation suffered by, you know, their, their mothers while they were pregnant. These this group of people experience other people's pain and pleasure. And I think that's a really in itself interesting idea. So what would we do differently if we genuinely could experience other people's pain and pleasure? You know, if empathy, like James was just saying earlier, isn't just a thing that we're, you know, kind of it's actually real. You know, we really could understand what other people were feeling. So over the novel, her gated community is threatened by this world outside, you know, which is even worse than the world inside this um, gated community where she lives. And so that community has to set out and kind of travel slowly north in order to escape the situation that that they're in. And what the interesting thing about the book is that over the course of it, Lauren gradually kind of intuits and develops this new spiritual faith system, which she calls Earthseed. And the main idea of Earthseed is that God is change. Um, and I find that a really interesting and helpful idea. You know, the idea that if change is all that's certain in life, and that's something that you have to kind of accept and deal with, then why not make that a central way of understanding the world, way of interacting with other people, etc. So, as I said, when her, her gated community is destroyed, she travels north with other survivors. And at the end, she founds a new community called Acorn. Name is obviously significant. So it's, it's a fascinating reworking of the genre with all this kind of hope for new ideas about belief and faith and spirituality, new ways of founding community, new ways of people relating to each other through this almost, you know, actually existing kind of hyper empathy. The other interesting thing about the book in relation to what Rachel was saying is that because literacy is gradually being lost in the world that she imagines, you know, people, lots of people can't read anymore because they've not been educated. So literacy becomes really important and Lauren can make a living by teaching people to read. And the Earthseed book is actually the Earthseed faith, sorry, is contained in a kind of written, you know, written down in a whole series of exercise books. So it exists as this kind of shared document that, that people can kind of contribute to and share with each other. So, yeah, that's um, a really, really interesting early example. And then, of course, um, people are perhaps more familiar with something like Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy. And again, the interesting thing there is that the word Mad Adam is a palindrome, which reads letter for letter the same backwards as forwards. And obviously, Atwood imagines the end of human civilization after a widespread flu pandemic. But at the same time, she imagines the creation of this new post-human species called the Krakers. 
Now, I know that Craig in, in, the, in the Mad Adam trilogy, who's the guy who creates this new species, but also engineers the fatal flu virus that destroys humanity. Craig is a controversial figure, certainly with James, because um, in his book, he talks about how Craig is described using various stereotypical autistic traits. I don't know if you want to come in there, James, on, on the way that uh, Craig is represented in the trilogy. Well, yes, I have admittedly been a bit harsh on the figure of Craig as, as created by, uh, by Atwood. I suppose what, what happens there is we have an example of how sometimes autism can be used as a metaphor that might help to tell a story. Now, I definitely feel that the story that Atwood is telling through the trilogy is uh, is a wonderful and worthwhile one. But yes, there were, there were moments where in, I think, the first volume, Craig is seen as sort of quite stereotypically autistic with the hyper-focus on, on, on science, but actually being ideologically opposed to the existence of the arts. But uh, as I say, it, it is perhaps a plot device, but it's in service of a very worthwhile, wider message. And I think, it, you know, it was of its time in some ways. But um, but yeah, how do you feel about that side of Craig, Susan? Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this quite a few times, and, and I think that it, it, it is problematic, I think, what she does there. By the end of the trilogy, I guess the point about Craig is that as well as, you know, killing off most of humanity with this flu virus, he's also created this new species called the Krakers. And at the end of the final novel, the one that's actually called Mad Adam, which was published in 2013, what happens is that the few humans that have survived, and, and there aren't very many of those, and the small group of Krakers, they have to learn to kind of coexist and they start reproducing. And what's interesting is that, in fact, the Krakers learn to read and write and take over the story. So they become the narrators of the novel itself instead of the humans, which I think is a, is a kind of interesting way of saying that the end can also be the beginning. So maybe, you know, OK, humanity might not survive in the way we expect, but through interaction with this new species and through maybe giving up some of its power over the story to other to others, we can get something quite different and, and new ways of writing, new ways of thinking and also new social structures that follow on from that. Susan, you've uh, you've offered uh, two wonderful synopses of the two texts, and I always think that you do that so beautifully. You always inspire me to want to read the books <laughs> that you examine. <laughs> and uh, and like you, the parable of of, of Sour, I felt that if there was a religion that w was focused on change and God as change, it was it would be yeah. something that I could buy into. Um, it's a fantastic philosophy. Although I suppose, well, not to give the the game away, but things don't stay that utopian. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. The second volume. Yeah, exactly. Talking of, of utopia, why is it that we're so obsessed, so fascinated, do you think, by our visions of dystopia and utopia, visions of the apocalypse or visions of a perfect society? Why do we, we always want to absorb these through different cultural forms? Well, I think it's something to do with the ambiguity in, well, what's dystopian to one person might be utopian to another person. And what's utopian to certain groups, you know, to those in power might be very dystopian for those who are powerless. And so 
it's about the fact that the terms shade into one another, I think, so that we can't. It's about perspective. You know, your your utopia might be my dystopia. But and I think that's captured really well in a term that Margaret Atwood coins, which is this term us-topia. So she's kind of mixing up the two words on, on an obvious level. But I think the other thing about that term is that because of the word us in there, she's kind of hailing us and saying it's up to us to decide what's utopian and what's dystopian and where we fit into that. So I think the appeal of the term and and the and the just the the different ways of imagining the future that they contain is about the the space it provides for us to debate, if you like, what kind of future we want or what kind of alternative world we want to the one that we live in. Um, and that gives us a certain kind of responsibility, if you like, to to take that question seriously, but also fly with it imaginatively. And that's why I think it's it's kind of quite a powerful idea, really. And that is really um, it, that's such a sort of profound point in terms of, of our present moment, that idea about you know, what alternative visions of the future we can manifest. Because obviously this year we faced a global pandemic and that's perhaps the closest thing to a type of apocalyptic event many yeah. of us will really ever experience. And what I wanted to ask, Susan, is if you think we will see any positive changes for women in the wake of the pandemic as we see represented in the texts you discuss? Or has COVID-19 only highlighted gender inequalities? You know, for example, there's the the unjust division of labour, which has worsened for women and having to work from home and shoulder the increased domestic burdens the pandemic has brought. Can we see anything positive coming of this in terms of our struggle for, for gender equality, do you think? Well, I think it depends on the political will being there. And and I think it absolutely it would mean recognising the volume of work that women do as work. So emotional labour, domestic labour, the labour that was so important in the pandemic, care work, basically. So it means recognising and valuing that. The second thing that I think is a gender issue, really, is how we treat the world around us. So climate change and just perceiving nature as this thing we can kind of, you know, use for our own benefit, not as something that we have to steward, if you like, and, and care about. I think that's also a gender issue because there are lots of continuities in the way that we view the natural world as this kind of feminine space for our own. That has to change. And finally, I think that it's it's about having the will to in, introduce things like, you know, a Green New Deal that actually gets people back to work, that is, is involved in transforming our economy away from oil and petrochemicals and towards, you know, other other more... Um, less rapacious, if I can use that word, forms of fuel and make basically rethinking how the economy works. Now, well, I think that the positive thing we can see is at the moment is people at least debating that. Uh, at least there's a kind of an awareness that these are issues that we need to explore. Over time, I guess the question will be exactly the one that these women writers are addressing. Do we all rush to go back to what we perceived to have been normal you know or do we actually take the chance to think and stop and actually change things I don't think we'll be able to go back to normal because normal's gone 
and you know if if you look in our city centers and it's, it's so different we we cannot go back to how things were before so i think of necessity you know i'm not predicting the future here well i suppose i am a little bit but indulge me um, i think that you know things will have to change and hopefully recognizing of people's differences and recognizing that people need to be more equal and that includes women people with disabilities um, amongst others then then hopefully that, that we will see changes like that over the next few years thank you susan thank you all of you have have given us so much inspiration in terms of ways in which we can see you know huge global changes but also how we can change the personal how we can write about our lives how we can think about our lives how we can find writing as a form of catharsis as a form of exploring alternative realities so it's been an absolute pleasure james rachel and susan to have you as part of this final podcast and i'd just like to remind our listeners to check out the podcast contributors blog in the LBU Together series on the Leeds Beckett website. So check out LBU Together series on the Leeds Beckett website and other podcasts. So thank you for listening and take care. The podcasts in the Beckett Talk series are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. Hope to see you next week.